0: Please remain standing as Reuben comes to to read to us from the book of Genesis chapter one this morning.
1: Reading from the book of Genesis chapter one verses one to ten. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Please be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. This is the opening statement of the book of Genesis, and it's the opening statement of the whole of scripture. And for those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians, it hardly seems controversial. It hardly seems like this would be a problem for anyone who has been part of the church for any length of time, even though we may not always understand it in the same way. And even though it's pretty routine that we ignore the fact that this statement is even there. But the Bible begins with creation, and this sets the framework for our understanding of literally everything that follows. There are, of course, those who disagree with that statement. Andrew Sandlin, in his book, Creational Worldview, quotes one, Paul F.M. Zoll, a prominent evangelical who said, We evangelicals do not start with a theology of creation. I would beg to differ, but that's his idea. The idea that God or a God created the world may be considered a surmise even a conclusion, based on observation and human reason, but it is not the starting point of Christianity. The starting point of Christianity is more specific and less abstract. I'm not sure how you can be more specific, really, than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But in his idea, God became one of us. This is the essence and starting point of Christianity. Of course, this man's use of the phrase, the idea that God or a God, small g, created the world may be considered a surmise or a guess, even a conclusion based on observation and human reason, really tells us all that we need to know about what passes for evangelicalism in his mind. The idea that God created the world is not a surmise or even a conclusion based on human reason. The idea that God created the world is really just a stone-cold fact based on the fact that he revealed it that way in Scripture. And as we saw last Sunday, all Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed, it is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, thoroughly trained for every good work. And that means, what Paul said means, that even this scripture that tells us about the ancient origins of the world is inspired by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is and always has been the opening statement of holy and divine scripture, to borrow a phrase once again from the Belgic Confession. So apart from Genesis 1 verse 1, we could only surmise. We could only guess that God, or presumably a God with a small g, not only created all things, but became one of us. And we could only guess at why that would even matter. We would have really no idea. If in the beginning God did not create the heavens and the earth, if in the beginning there was no God, then in reality it really doesn't matter if a God of some description decided to become one of us. If we are guessing about creation, then we are also guessing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And if we are guessing about either of those things, then we really have no gospel to proclaim. What we have is an evangelicalism without an evangel. We have so-called gospel-centered churches with no gospel at the center. As Sandlin wrote, because evangelicals have embraced a truncated view of the Bible's message, because they have emphasized the evangel narrowly construed as the be-all and end-all, a growing number have been willing to sacrifice the more fundamental creational truths on which the true evangel Is founded. Now I like the illustration that he put forward. He went on, have you ever been watching a movie at home and had a relative or friend arrive late, sit down, watch for 10 minutes in the middle of the movie and then ask, why did that character say that or do that? And similar annoying questions, his words, not mine. And after a while you probably respond in exasperation, You'll just have to watch it from the beginning. And the same is true of the Bible. You can observe the action and teaching that comes later on, but if you really want to understand that in the context in which God gave it, then you have to start from the beginning. This is all the more obvious when we consider that Jesus Christ himself the Son of God, and presumably the one in whom God became one of us, as Saul put it, believed the Genesis account to be true. Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus said, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Well, he's referring to Genesis chapter 1, actually quoting from it there in Mark chapter 10. So how could we claim to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a meaningful way if we deny the truth that Jesus himself evidently believed? Well, someone might say he lived in a different time, and he didn't have all the advantages of modern science to inform his worldview. And true, he did live in a different time. The thing is, we believe that he was also God and therefore didn't need the advantage of modern science. Regarding creation, he knew what he was talking about, because, frankly, he was there. As we have seen in our study of the Gospel of John, in the beginning, same opening expression, at the beginning of the Gospel of John that's used in the Greek version of Genesis. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So when Jesus speaks of the beginning, as he did again in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Not only did Jesus know exactly what he was talking about, he knew what he was talking about because he was talking about his own handiwork. He who made them from the beginning is he himself, Jesus is not only the author and finisher of our faith, that religious part of our life. Jesus is the author of life itself. And if we deny creation, then we deny the creator. If we get creation wrong, we get the gospel wrong. If we deny Genesis, we deny Jesus. And that means that with the opening statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, a line is drawn. A line is drawn between a biblical worldview and an unbiblical worldview. You either believe there is a God and he created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, as the Westminster Confession of of Faith said, or there are is no God or there's some sort of God, but he's not really responsible for having created all of those things in the way that he said. This is a line that gets drawn through the middle of humanity. A line is drawn between the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, and some other gospel. Not that there is another one, as Paul said, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm beginning this study of Genesis this summer, because in the account of the beginning given to us by the one person who was there, well, we're talking about God, so the three persons who were there, although they existed in one essence, in this account of creation, we have the foundation on which our understanding of the rest of the scriptures and our understanding of the gospel must rest if we want to really understand what God is saying. If we don't believe what God says in the first three chapters of Genesis regarding creation and regarding the fall, frankly, we have no need for a Redeemer. We have no need for a Savior. What would be the point? Jesus came into the world to save his people from... What? It's only when we understand that God made this world, God entered into covenant with the people that he created into his image, and that when they fell from that covenant, violating God's law, there was a need created. A need for a savior, a need for a redeemer, a need for one who could reconcile the world to himself. Now, since this is the first sermon in this series we have to address The obligatory questions of who wrote it and when was it written, that's just something that is part of every biblical sermon series and Bible study. But it's especially important here because we may come to this book as if Genesis were kind of a stand-alone volume in God's library, just one of the 66 books which together make up the scriptures. The thing is, though, Genesis is not Let me say that again for emphasis. Genesis is not a book that was written over a vast period of time based on multiple sources, which were themselves compilations of oral traditions handed down over generations in such a way that those stories and even myths were distorted and and lost in the process of transmission. And what we got was somebody's best guess at the kind of mythology that God wanted to give to his people. These are not stories, they are not myths that were eventually codified to cement the power of the priesthood over an ancient and presumably ignorant people. Rather, Genesis came to the people of God as the first volume of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, commonly known and for good reason as the books of Moses. And in John 5, verse 46, Jesus himself said to those who were persecuting him, these are, in fact, the books of Moses. If you believed Moses, he said, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And again, in Luke 24, with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection from the dead, we are told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And a little later, in the upper room, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Incidentally, when Jesus in that day said the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that sums up the whole of the Old Testament scripture. The New Testament had not been given yet. But the Hebrew understanding of the Old Covenant Scripture was law, prophets, psalms, writings. So Jesus is just saying that everything that was written about me in the whole of this book that we know as the Old Testament had to come to pass. And the law of Moses was specifically understood to refer to the Pentateuch, the first five books, including Genesis. So again, who wrote Genesis? Moses. How do I know this? Once again, because this is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, believed and said. And so to to deny Mosaic authorship is in some sense to claim to be smarter than Jesus. There's a lot of people out there who are quite willing to make that claim. They say Jesus just believed that Moses wrote these books based on the traditions of the Jews, and he didn't know any better. Okay, so we have a problem. Either Jesus was God incarnate, and he knew better, but he kind of fudged on it because he thought it would be too confusing to tell people, well, I know you believe Moses wrote it, but Moses didn't really write it. There were actually four sources, J-E-D-P. Ask me sometime, and I'll explain it. And those sources got pulled together by rabbis in the post-exilic era of Judaism and combined into this book that we know as Genesis. And it was all based on other sources and oral traditions. And Jesus thought, well, that would be confusing, so I'll just call them the book of Moses. Or Jesus didn't know. He didn't know that Genesis was not really written By Moses, which raises some serious problems with the salvation that we claim to have in him, because if he was not God, he could not die for your sin. If he was wrong about this, then really we can't trust him about anything. So in Genesis, was written, as as to when it was written, it should go without saying that since Moses is the author, humanly speaking, of this divinely inspired volume, then it was written sometime during the life of Moses. That just makes sense. And given that it's the first volume of the Pentateuch, it seems... Likely that it was composed sometime between when Israel first arrived at Mount Sinai and received the law and Moses' final address to the people of Israel on the east side of the Jordan. There's this 40 year period of time between the exodus from Egypt and when Moses died, a little over 40 years, when this book must have been inspired and written down by Moses. He was busy during those years writing out the texts of the books that God gave to him. That also answers another question because occasionally someone will ask me, why doesn't the first book of the Bible begin by trying to prove the existence of God? And that's a question that would almost make sense if this book really were a compilation of oral traditions that appeared after the exile to Babylon. But when you understand that Genesis was given to the people of Israel at Sinai after crossing the Red Sea, then you also understand why it is not necessary for Genesis to prove or even attempt to prove the existence of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, after reiterating the Ten Commandments, Moses said these words, The Lord spoke to your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord, behold, Yahweh, our God, has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still lives. So the people of the day didn't need proof that God existed. They had seen the fire, cloud, and darkness at the top of the mountain. They had heard God's voice speaking to them audibly, giving them the law. They knew that God was there and that he was real. They just needed to know more about who he was, particularly in terms of the covenant that he had established with them. When Moses had gone to Pharaoh some time before that, and he said, Thus says the Lord, God, thus says Yahweh, God, let my people go. Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And at this point in their history, the people of Israel might well have asked a similar question. Who is the Lord? They had been in slavery for 400 years, working All day and collapsing in exhaustion at night. They had no written records of any of this. And so Moses comes along to deliver them, and they're happy to be delivered, but they really don't know the God who's really the one delivering them. And Genesis is given as an answer to that question Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the God. With whom you have to do. The living God who created all things by the word of his power. And everything that would follow the exodus from Egypt only made sense in the light of this understanding. That whole incident at the foot of the mountain when Moses has disappeared and they don't know what's happened to him. And they come to Aaron and they say, make us Elohim, make us gods who will take us back to Egypt. Well, that makes sense in regard to the Egyptian pantheon of gods, which is what they knew. There's all kinds of different gods. Just about every natural phenomenon has some god associated with it. But it doesn't make sense if you understand that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the living God, the God who created all things. Then it makes no sense at all. And everything that comes after the Exodus through all of the Old Testament into the New, including the Incarnation, Life, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only makes sense in that same light. Jesus is the Son of the God who created all things. Jesus is, in fact, the God who created all things. Again, in the words of Andrew Sandlin, this is why Genesis comes first in the Bible. And we must always keep Genesis in our thoughts as we read the Bible and as we live out our Christian lives. Creation is the foundation of and backdrop for the rest of the Bible. You can't get creation wrong and get the rest of the Bible right. Some well-meaning Christians, he goes on, seem to think that we should begin with redemption, the cross, and the resurrection and salvation, and then work in reverse to explain creation in terms of it. This has things precisely backwards. It does so because Jesus Christ is not only the Redeemer of God's people and the one through whom God has reconciled all things to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. He is also the creator without whom was not anything made that was made. You know, even if you were inclined, and I hope that you're not because it would be terrible, but if you're inclined to say we need to disconnect from the Old Testament, as a prominent evangelical Baptist pastor said not too terribly long ago, even if you were inclined to that, to say, well, let's, let's not have genesis as part of our bible let's just stick to the new testament we'll think of where the gospel of john begins and where the revelation that was given to john ends it's kind of like the gospel of john part two we went through all of that a couple of years back it begins in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god all things were made through him and without him was not anything made the gospel of john begins with creation And if you read through to the end of the book of Revelation, you discover in the last couple of chapters that there is this new creation, this new heaven and new earth that God is making as he restores and reconciles things to him in Christ Jesus, his son. So even if you were to say, well, we don't like the book of Genesis, and I hope you won't, and I hope you'll come back to hear more of it as we study through it together, but you don't do away with the problem. The Gospel of John teaches us that Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is not merely, as difficult as it is to use that word, our Savior. He is our creator. He is our Redeemer. He is the one who recreates us through the work of His Holy Spirit into His image so that we may be like Him. Jesus is God, He is our Savior precisely because he is God. If he were not God, he could not be our Savior. And as God, the creator of all things, by the way, we exist, and we have been saved for him, of him, through him, and to him, not the other way around. In other words, not only is he our Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom and for whom all things were created, is Lord. In the course of this series, if the Lord is willing, we're going to be looking not only at creation, but also at what some have called creational norms. In other words, we will be looking at some things that were broken by mankind's fall into sin, not at the way they are in their brokenness, but at the way that they were and at the way that they were meant to be. Well, all of this is meant not to lead us to despair at the brokenness of our fallen world when we compare it to the world that God made. It's meant to lead us to rest our hope in God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's a verse we all need to memorize. For the creation waits with eager longing, the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See there the connection between the creation itself which was subjected to futility in the fall and the reconciliation and restoration of that creation which happens through the work of Christ as he redeems his people from our sin. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, The redemption of our bodies, which happens when Christ comes again and all things are made new. The redemption of our bodies is the restoration of what is now to the way that it was meant to be. And we can only understand that in the light of God's creation. For in this hope, Paul goes on, we were saved. That's why we're going to be looking at these early chapters, especially of the book of Genesis and at the things that God has revealed to us about his world there. For blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever Lord. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, as we begin this series looking at the book of Genesis, at the word that you inspired and gave to your people through Moses, and Father, as as we consider things that go back well before his time, all the way to the beginning of this world that you made, Help us to keep in mind that of all people, you're the only one who was there, who not only observed the things that happened, but who made those things happen as you created the world by the word of your power. Give us faith, as the writer to the Hebrews says, to understand that everything that we see, the world that is, was made from things which do not appear. And Lord, help us to trust in you that as the God who has the power to create all things from nothing, that you also have the power to redeem us from our sin and to make us your own and to draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.